You are listening to the podcast of New Life Church in Wayland, Michigan. Our longing is to see zero people in our community living unchanged by Jesus. We are a church navigating the messiness of life together in community. One of our core convictions is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. I hope you know there is a place in the family for you here. For more information on gathering times and location, check out our website. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through this word. Hello, hello. How are we doing this morning? Good. Uh, Man, I'm so excited that you are here with us this morning. If we have not had a chance to meet yet, uh, my name is Brad, and I'd love to meet you uh, this morning. And so if we have not had that chance yet, come up and say hi afterwards. I'd love to connect with you and and hear your story. So if you were with us last week, we started a, a series called Rewriting Love. And it's all about how marriages and singleness and relationships can tell the story of the gospel. Basically, how our lives tell the story of the gospel through our relationships. And so I want to begin this morning by asking maybe one of the most loaded questions that you can ask about a relationship. One of the most controversial questions in our world today about relationships. And the question goes something like this. Who is in charge? (laughs) Who is in charge? Think about this. For, for most of our lives, it's relatively clear who is in charge. Like, when there's a parent-child relationship, it's obvious the children are in charge. I'm just kidding. In our case, sometimes. Holy cow. We have a rule in our family that says, he who cannot wipe his own butt does not get to make the rules. <laughs> but as a parent and kid, you're born and, and you realize, like, you, you need these parent figures, these caretakers to help you survive the caretaker is in charge. Or in school, you, you go to school and uh, you're a student in school and the teacher's in charge or the principal's in charge. I actually had a principal in elementary school. Her name was Miss Elmer and she wore these like super high heels and the super strong perfume. And so between the clicks of her heels on the floor and the smell of her, you always knew when she was coming around and you start shaking in your boots. What about playing on a sports team? We know coach is in charge, or being in a job, you have a boss who sets your schedule or reviews your performance, and in some cases tells their employees, he who cannot wipe his own butt does not make the rules. But what about when you enter into a dating relationship with someone? When you start to pursue a more serious relationship with someone, that question, who who is in charge, becomes a little bit more fuzzy, because you're engaging in a relationship of equals, who choose to enjoy each other. Each person retains individual freedom in a dating relationship to make personal decisions, and there is no boss. But then what happens when you enter into a marriage relationship? Things change a little bit, don't they? Because in a marriage, you're not just dating someone anymore, but in a marriage, you now are committing yourself to the authority of a relationship. In a different way than before, there's exclusivity and there's longevity and there's something different. And so the question, who is in charge in a marriage, man, that's a loaded question. It's a loaded question in our culture. It was a loaded question when Paul spoke about it to the church in Ephesus that we're going to look at today. That is a loaded question. And to be honest, most couples, most couples can't clearly answer this question. And yet, being able to answer the question, who is in charge, has pretty drastic 
impacts and, and um, implications for how decisions are made, how we pursue goals, what jobs we take, what our family values. But more importantly than any of that, answering the question, who is in charge, speaks to how a couple pursues oneness with each other. It speaks to how a couple pursues unity and oneness. And, and most couples can't answer the question, who is in charge? And so they resort to things like compromise or manipulation. Anybody see the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding before? A couple of us like that movie. So the matriarch of the family, Maria Portakalos. I'm not going to attempt to say this in a Greek accent for the sake of not offending somebody. Did somebody say do it? <laughs> this would be so bad. I'm not even going to try. I'm going to embarrass myself. But Maria Portugalos is famous for saying, man, the, the man may be the head of the house, but the woman is the neck, and she can turn the head any way she wants. And all the ladies in the room are like, amen to that. <laughs> Here's the deal. I hate compromising. I don't like compromising. Because if you think about it, two different people that want two different things, you give a little and I give a little, you win a little, I lose a little. And we view compromise sometimes as this idea of like win-win. I think compromise is just lose-lose that's a little less crappy. But is there something to be said for taking one for the team, going the whole distance so that someone else can win once in a while? Instead of just settling for kind of coming together in the middle, what about sometimes running the distance so that someone else can win? Today I want to teach on one of the most controversial texts in all of Scripture. This is one that a lot of people read today and get pretty hung up on. This is a text of Scripture that, that people read today and Sometimes it trips them up a little bit, or we bring baggage to this text of Scripture because some of us enter this text with a lot of baggage. Maybe we've been abused. Maybe we've experienced real, legitimate hurt and anger from a spouse. You see, under the influence of the curse, this particular text, maybe more than any other, has been used over generations to hurt people. And dare I say, even abuse people. It's been misused many, many times. Some of us read this text and think Handmaid's Tale, if you've ever heard of that show before, and their eye starts to twitch. But I want to ask you, as we enter into a difficult text this morning, if you wouldn't mind just suspending your judgment for a few minutes. Because I believe God has something so powerful for us. And as my wife and I have engaged this text in our marriage, in our relationship, it has fundamentally changed some things for how we live in our marriage. And so if you have a Bible with you this morning, turn with me to uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. It says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So as we read and study and, and kind of dissect this passage a little bit, I want to begin with just a reminder. This passage was not written to you. 
And this passage was not written to me. This passage was written to a specific group of people. It certainly is for us. It certainly has implications for us, but it wasn't written directly to us with us in mind. My photos are opening on my iPad. There's a nice picture of my kids right there. Cool. <laughs> so I want to paint the picture of the, the world that Paul is writing this letter to. It's, it's a town called Ephesus. It's a pretty large city. It would be comparable to like a Chicago in the United States. It was like the third largest city in the Roman Empire. So it's, it's a relatively large city known for a patron goddess named Artemis. It was a large banking center. I mean, it was just a center of commerce and life happening in this place. And the other thing you need to know is that it was a very patriarchal society. And so submission made sense. Women were viewed as fundamentally inferior to men. Not just different roles, but different dignity levels, different equality levels. In fact, there, uh, there was a guy, maybe you've heard of him, named Aristotle that lived during this time. And Aristotle wrote these household codes, this idea of how, how should a society function. And he wrote codes about how husbands and wives interact with each other, wrote codes about how fathers and children and slaves and masters interacted with each other. In fact, as you read the New Testament, you see this over and over again in Paul's letters, these different relationships. What Paul is doing is he's pointed to already existing household codes, household structures in his culture. But this wasn't just a pagan thing. Jewish men, and we've talked about this a lot, Jewish men had a lower view of women. Women didn't have a full say in the Jewish court. They were viewed as almost fully human. And so in the Greek world, Women were expected to run the household, to raise the legitimate children of the household, to oversee the, the servants in the household, to do all of these things. And men's expectation was just kind of do what you want. In fact, it was really common during that time for men to have multiple people they were sleeping with. Prostitution, man, that didn't have the stigma that it has today. It was very very common for men to be able to just go kind of sleep around and, and do whatever they want and kind of their wife was property. Their wife didn't have a voice. She didn't have dignity. She didn't have a say in the relationship in this household. We see men getting old, married to younger women. So a lot of times men were around 30 when they got married and the woman was around 18 during this time. Female babies were abandoned much more frequently than male babies. And so this world really had a, a legitimately low view of women that Paul is writing to. But on the flip side, there was also a movement emerging in Ephesus, a feminist movement, that actually sought to kind of flip the roles of men and women in that culture. And so what the feminist movement was trying to do during this time is it was trying to say, you know what, no, men, they can sleep with whoever they want, they can do whatever they want, why can't women in the same position in a marriage do the same thing? And so what was happening in this feminist movement is they were basically trying to de like undignify men, lower men in the effort to raise women up above men. And so you'd see things like women going out in the fields and hunting wild game topless or lauding things over their husbands or initiating divorce. Basically, this movement sought to turn the tables of dignity, saying women have dignity, but men, men don't. And then, to add on top of that, the Roman emperor at the time, Augustus, 
saw this happening and said, whoa, 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 this is kind of messing up the household order, the social good for women to be kind of usurping men's role. And so he started levying heavy taxes on people who would get divorced or people who were single. And so what we need to understand about this letter that Paul is writing is he's not just offering kind of random marriage advice kind of thrown out in a vacuum. He's not just saying this is how to have a good marriage kind of independently of a culture. What he is doing is he is showing how this new Jesus movement, this gospel movement, actually comes to bear on the household structures of his day. What Paul is doing here is he's showing the church, these new Christians, how the message of Jesus impacts the way that we engage in our relationships, in our marriages, in our singleness. See, he's not just offering marriage advice, he's telling the story of the gospel. And so when Paul writes these words, Wives, submit to your husbands. Man, that wasn't controversial at all. That made sense. That was like, okay, duh. Like, that's, that's kind of just what we do. That's what our culture says to do. And when he makes this statement, he actually offers almost no application for how this is lived out. Right? He just kind of gives us a general principle, but very little application. Other than this, he points us to the person of Jesus. Does you want to look at a picture of submission? Look at the way Jesus honored his father. Look at the way Jesus elevated other people. Is humility, and I just want to ask this question, in your marriage, especially to wives, is humility a word that can describe you? Is honor a word that can describe you? When you and your spouse are in a place where you are disagreeing, is your focus more on winning, or is it more on being one? Is it more on winning the argument or being one in the relationship? You see, the kicker about what Paul is saying here is he's saying, wives, submit to your husbands. This wasn't new. This was kind of a normal thing. But then he really flips it on its head. He takes the household structures of his day and he subverts them. He flips them on their head, and in Paul's mindset, no one in a marriage avoids submission. Men don't avoid submission. Women don't avoid submission. And so he subverts this world, and he flips it on its head with these next words. In Ephesians 5, 25, he says this. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So if you're a man in Ephesus reading this, you're thinking, wait, what? Love your wives? Give dignity to your wives? Lay down your life for your wives? What kind of soft snowflake of a man loves his wife? Like, that's the question. We laugh, but like, that's the question they would have been asking. This was so revolutionary for the people in Ephesus. This idea that, that husbands are called to actually lay their lives down for their wives. You see, guys, the primary marker of a disciple of Jesus is not who is most powerful or who is greatest in the eyes of the world. The marker for a disciple of Jesus, whether in a household, in the marketplace, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, the primary marker for a disciple of Jesus Christ is this agape, self-sacrificial, lay-your-life-down-for-the-sake-of-others type of love. That's it. 
And so when Paul is calling wives to submit to husbands, I want to be really clear here. He is not calling women to submit themselves to abusive relationships. I want to be as abundantly clear as I can on that. And he's not calling all women in all of society to submit to all men. He's not saying that either. What he's saying is in this covenant relationship between two spirit-filled people, when you play this out, the world has a chance to see the gospel at play. That instead of kind of holding on, instead of trying to simply assert dominance, Jesus is our model for what submission in marriage looks like. That he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held onto or white-knuckle gripped, but he gave up his privilege. He gave up his seat of authority, and he took on the form and function of a servant. This is how Jesus models submission for us. And so maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, man, that's good. Like, congratulations, Paul. You took, you know, a step forward, but our culture is still five steps forward of where you are. And I would just say to you, like, Christians have used this passage to abuse and hurt people. It's been used time and time again to do that. And I don't believe that's what Paul is getting at here. Because the radical new concept that Paul is introducing to this Roman world is this idea that marriage is not about compromise. It's not. Marriage is about mutual, voluntary submission. Marriage is not about compromise. It's about mutual, voluntary submission. Submit yourselves, the opening of this passage, submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. So who, who is Paul calling both husbands and wives to submit to? To Jesus, ultimately. That's the invitation. That's the calling, is to submit ourselves to Jesus. Submission and sacrifice is not women doing something for men or men doing something for women. Submission and sacrifice is what it looks like when two people in covenant with one another decide to go all in for Jesus together. And it's a beautiful picture. And anytime you see Paul talk about marriage, this idea of mutual voluntary submission comes up over and over and over again. For example, in 1 Corinthians 7, he says this. He says, Wives don't have authority over her own body, but yields her body to her husband. If you're a person in Corinth, you hear that passage, and you're like, yeah, that makes sense. Wives yield their body to their husbands. The husband has control over the wife's body. But then the kicker, and this would have caused some men to flip tables in Corinth, Paul then next says this, husbands don't have authority over their bodies either. They yield them to their wife. Because this is a picture of what happens when the gospel is lived out in a revolutionary way in the world. See, for a Roman man to restrict his sexuality, to limit it, and hand it over to his wife? That was a different story. That was not a story the world was hearing. Can you imagine a guy with his friends, and they're going to go out and hook up with a bunch of prostitutes out in the town square, and he says, you know what? No, I'm good. My body belongs to my wife. That's who it belongs to. He probably would have gotten mocked endlessly, made fun of for that mentality. This was a revolutionary principle Paul is introducing to the Roman world. A few weeks ago, I shared this graph as part of our witness series. And this graph is just a picture of 
really five of the primary markers that the early church was known by as you study church history. And we talked through each of these, but the one we're focusing on today is this idea of a countercultural sexual ethic. That the Christian movement introduced to the world something so radical, something so different, that the world took notice and began to see the power structures and systems of the world begin to flip because it wasn't just men over women, but it was everybody submitting themselves to Christ. You see, the way that husbands and wives choose to submit to one another, it matters. The way husbands and wives choose to submit to Christ matters. Paul is calling husbands to relinquish power in their relationships with their wives, dominance in their relationships with their wives. You see, no other place in human society valued people like the early church. It was a radical concept that at the same table, men and women could come together. At the same table, kids and slaves could come together and experience fellowship. This was such a radical view. And I, I got to tell you, this model that Paul gives, submission and sacrifice, submission and sacrifice, it did not lead to oppression. It led to more dignity for people. And I wonder why so many in our culture get hung up on this idea, this word submission, is because maybe the model the church has used for submission has not been used to offer more dignity to people. Maybe it's been used to offer less dignity to people, to exclude people from the table, to not be a place that is welcoming all people in. Paul flips this notion. He demonstrates a model of submission, of sacrifice, that points the world to the gospel. So husbands... Relinquishing power and submitting by sacrificially loving your wives is a beautiful thing. And before the fall, Genesis 3, we saw this beauty in kind of gender differences and the way they were actually used to display God's diverse creation in the world and point people to God and his glory. But the moment the fall came into the picture, that beautiful relationship was severed. Gender differences were no longer this place of beautiful unity and diversity, but all of a sudden became this like roadblock. This woman you put me here did this to me. Right? That was one of Adam's first words out of his mouth after the fall. It's all of a sudden now this place of division and trying to one-up each other and have the last word and, and, and beat each other and win. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, no, we, we got to get back. Like if the message of Jesus is going to take root in your lives, in your households, in your relationships, then gender differences are no longer this place of contention and division and trying to one-up each other, but gender differences actually become a picture for the gospel of Jesus Christ living and breathing in a household, in the real stuff of life. And so let's get practical here for a minute. When I look at some of the baggage that I see men carrying into relationships, men carrying into marriages, sometimes I think it's just selfishness. Like, I wonder if that's at play for a lot of men in relationships. Is It's just selfishness. We want what we want. We want our own time, and, and we view marriage sometimes as taking something from us. But what if instead of marriage being something that's taken from you, what if you viewed marriage as something that you have the opportunity to give as a gift to someone else? Like for men in the room, maybe you struggle with selfishness. 
And the question you need to be asking is, how do I give up my selfishness and submit that to the character of Jesus in my relationship? Your wife's response is irrelevant in this equation. How do you go first as a man and submit yourself to Jesus and give up your selfishness in your relationships? Here's another one. This one's a tough one for some. How do you speak to and about the woman, women in your life? How do you speak about your wife when she's not around? How do you speak about your mother or the women around you when, you're, when your wife is not around? Or if you're single, how do you speak about women in general? It's interesting because when I was first married uh, to Sam, uh, one of my best friends came up to me. We were about a year into our marriage, and he said, you, you use a lot of sarcasm to speak about your wife. And, and I can see how it's actually hurting her. It's actually not building her up. It's tearing her down. And that was a moment for me where I had a, a friend that was willing to come to me and to say, hey, like, this, isn't, this isn't building your wife up. This isn't sacrificially laying your life down for her. You're actually tearing her down. And so the question for the men in the room is how can I nourish and cherish the women around me? Not how can my wife nourish and cherish and satisfy me, but how can I nourish and cherish the women around me? Not because they're helpless, not because they need it, but as, a, as an opportunity to point the women in our life to the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, guys, submitting your need for satisfaction to Jesus allows you to pour yourself out in a way for your spouse that you otherwise would not be able to do. It's at the cross of Jesus Christ where those things are met. This perspective I'm going to embarrass Sam for a second here, but this perspective has changed our, our lives. Like our, it's changed everything about our lives, our sex lives, everything. When you, view, when you view something in marriage as an opportunity to be given as a gift, not just taken as something to be received, it changes the way you move throughout your marriage. And so if a man, women in the room, ever says to his wife, woman, submit, wives can reply by saying, man, die. <laughs> reality is, though, because of abuse and loss and divorce, some of us are genuinely terrified to offer ourselves to another person in this way. Like For some of us, this is potentially the most terrifying thing in the world to, to become vulnerable and to give ourselves to another. And, and can I just say, this is not God's good intention for our relationships. This is not how he built us to experience relationships with each other. This is the fall in action. Maybe you're here and you say, I want to be in. I want to let you in. Maybe it's a new relationship or a marriage. I want to let you in, but I'm terrified that you'll either be a tyrant or a disappointment. What does it look like to submit that to Jesus? What does it look like to bring that to the cross of Jesus Christ and allow him to transform that and move in that? See, the Bible doesn't tell us how to actually live this out. It doesn't give us like a one, two, three, here's your three-step program to live this out. What it simply does, it points us to the life of Jesus over and over and over again. Jesus is our model for submission in marriage. Jesus is our model for sacrifice in marriage. One of my favorite kind of lines of Jesus happens in Mark 10, and he's, he's speaking to his disciples about what his kingdom will look like and what discipleship to him looks like and what does it mean to become an apprentice and a follower of Jesus. 
And Jesus is standing there, and he's speaking to his disciples, and he's pointing out the different ways that authority and submission and these things play themselves out in the world. And this is what he says to his disciples. He says, Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. And so he's basically saying, look at the power structures of this world. Authority and submission are used to kind of one-up each other and pursue power and dominance and coercion and all of these things. But then look what he says next. Read that out loud with me. Not so with you. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. I think those words, that statement, not so with you, are perhaps some of the most powerful words that I've ever heard Jesus say. You can look to this world and you can see even in the church how this has been abused and abused and abused to rip and steal dignity from people. But in Jesus' kingdom, not so with you. The way we live this stuff out in the church looks different. The way we choose submission to make ourselves less, to elevate others, looks different. The way we serve sacrificially looks different. You see, Jesus gives us a model of one who gives up his privilege over and over and over again for the sake of others. You see, in the dance and the relationship of the Trinity, the one who is the greatest is the one who is the most self-effacing, self-sacrificing, most devoted to the good of the other. You want to put this model into practice? I want to give you just a couple pieces of application that I believe are really helpful. Number one, if you want to, if you want to learn how to practice submission in your relationships, my suggestion to you is to look at how Jesus interacted with his Father. To look at the way that he, fully loved, fully known by his Father, fully already accepted God, but he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He submitted himself. He humbled himself. For the honor of his Father, Jesus chose to make himself less. Jesus is the perfect example of submission in relationships. You don't have to look any further than the person of Jesus to know what it looks like to submit in a relationship. And the same thing is true for sacrifice. If you want to know how to sacrifice, subordinate yourself by learning how to wash feet and serve the poor and meet women at wells and elevate other people. Jesus, Jesus model for sacrifice, you can see that in the way that he interacted with people around him. You can see that lived out in the way that he served and served and served and gave his life as a ransom for many. And so, guys, the question is not so much who is in charge. The question, I think, that's more important than that is who is the center of your marriage story? Who is at the center of your marriage story? I'm going to invite my wife, Sam, up. She's going to help me with a brief demonstration. Everybody say, hi, Sam. <laughs> this is my way, 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 way better half. Um, 
So here's, I just want to kind of give you a visual demonstration of what this, what this can look like. And you need to hear from us. We're not standing up here as examples of this. We're just happen to be in placeholders, okay? So, uh, so what we often see when we talk about submission and marriage is the call for a wife to kind of take a knee in a marriage. So if you want to go ahead and do that, take a knee. And if you know Sam, you know she takes a knee for people all the time. I mean, she is, she is a servant at heart. This is just, is just the posture that she moves through life. And so you have, you have wife taking a knee here, and you have husband standing up. And I think this is the way maybe a lot of people view Christian marriage. That wife submits, husband leads, and that's just the end of it. But that's not what Paul is getting at, simply. Like, if this is the picture we have of marriage, this isn't the full gospel picture that Paul is getting at. Because, because let me explain why. Because if this is the model that we have, then what that does is it actually makes each other the center of our marriage story. So I can put the pressure on Sam, and I can say, well, you're not submitting well enough. And she can say back to me, well, you're not leading well enough. And we can, we can end up putting the pressure on each other and making each other the center of our marriage story. This is not how God intended it to work. See, if the call to submit is taking one knee, the call for sacrifice is to take two knees of surrender. And to say, you know what? Our relationships, they are built and they are designed to show the picture of Jesus to the world where it's continually humbling ourselves and elevating the other and humbling ourselves and elevating the other. Service and submission, sacrifice and submission over and over and over in this pattern. But I want you to hear that even this, even this is not completely what Paul is getting at. This isn't even the full picture. Because what can happen here if this is the posture where we're just focused in on each other and serving each other and loving each other, then we can actually become idols in our marriage story. That we can become the center of our marriage story. And so what can end up happening when we do that is we can actually look to each other to fulfill things in our life that, were never, that we were never designed to fulfill in each other. Like there are, if this is the posture of our marriage... There are going to be times where we are let down by each other and have no idea what to do and feel at total loss because this isn't ultimately the picture Paul is getting at. The picture Paul is getting at is that when a husband and wife are willing to submit to each other to sacrifice, the way this is done is they both turn towards the cross. This is what Paul is getting at. So maybe you're here this morning and, and you're single or your spouse isn't here and you're wondering, how does this apply to me? See, I don't think Paul was just offering unsolicited marriage advice. I think God's intention behind this passage was actually to give us a model for what wholeness looks like. And I'm here to tell you that wholeness is not found in this relationship. That's not where it's found. Wholeness is found in this relationship. This is where wholeness is found. That's why you can be single and be fully whole, lacking nothing. That's why in marriage, we can show each other what wholeness looks like, but we do not complete that within each other. We only show each other what that looks like lived out. You know, for some of us, for some of us, we're reminded daily that our spouse does not meet in us what we need them to meet. And I say that if that's you, we see you. We're with you. We're for you. 
And your wholeness is not found in your relationship to another person. Your wholeness is found in your relationship to the person of Jesus Christ. I think there's some people that need to hear that this morning. That there are times in our marriage where Sam, and you know this, you don't meet everything that I need. And there are times where I don't meet everything you need. But where marriage works is where we learn to take those unmet needs to the cross of Jesus Christ and allow him to fulfill those in us. That's the power of a marriage that works. And so, thank you, Sam. (laughs) Get off our old person knees for a second here. (laughs) So maybe you're here and you're just kind of like, what what do I do with that? I want to close our service today by inviting you into communion. Communion is this beautiful, beautiful picture of the God who chose submission and sacrifice as a way of life who didn't white-knuckle grip, who didn't clench, but laid his life down for the sake of other people. And so what we're going to do for communion uh, this morning is we're going to invite you. There's two stations, one up here and and one back there. And while we sing, if you don't mind just going to grab a cup and a cracker, we do have gluten-free options, so you're welcome for those of you who need that. Uh, Just grab a cup and a a cracker and don't take it yet. We're going to take it together as a community. I'm going to lead us through it. So during the song... Uh, Get the elements, hold them at your side or at your seat, and just spend some time praying. Maybe for you, it's it's laying a need down that is unmet in a spouse. Saying, God, this is what is agitating me. This is what is in me. I want to lay that down. Maybe for you, you're here with a spouse or a fiance or a boyfriend or girlfriend, and and you, you just spend some time during the song praying together with each other. Praying that God will give you the ability, the power to live out this idea that is so countercultural, submission and sacrifice to one another, submission and sacrifice to the person of Jesus. So let me pray, and then we're going to invite you to grab the elements, and after the song is over, we'll, we'll take them together. God, thank you so much for who you are. God, thank you that you went first, that you, you are a God who gave us the model of what it looks like to wash feet to get down in the dust with each other, to walk in our mess, in our junk. That you are the God who chose perfect sacrifice. That Jesus, you submitted yourself to your Father. Not out of dominance, not out of coercion, but out of self-sacrificing love. God, I pray for the marriages in this room. I pray for the marriages of people watching online that this will be the shape of the gospel lived out in marriages. The husbands and wives both fully submitted to the person of Jesus. So God, we love you. This morning we worship you, we honor you, and it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. And everybody said, amen.